0: Welcome to Teen Peds Talks, a podcast series from the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners featuring NAPNAP experts and stakeholders addressing key issues in pediatric health. This series will focus on children in foster care. Teen Peds Talks is available wherever you listen to podcasts by searching Teen Peds Talks on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or on Anchor.fm. My name is Bridget Van Graflin and I'm an associate professor at Johns Hopkins School of Nursing. I've been a pediatric nurse practitioner for 33 years and a nursing educator for over 20 years. I've practiced extensively in underserved rural and urban primary care settings. My scholarship focuses on improving outcomes for children and youth in foster care, child maltreatment, and human trafficking. I'm the chair of the NAPNAP Child Maltreatment Special Interest Group and chair for the Alliance for Children in Foster Care.
1: Hi, I'm Tracy Hallis and I'm a pediatric nurse practitioner with my primary mental health specialist certification. I've spent the last 15 years working with children and adolescents with a history of child maltreatment and currently work at the Medical University of South Carolina and their foster care support clinic. Um, I've spoken nationally on topics related to youth and foster care and serve currently as the co-chair for the Alliance for Children and Foster Care for NAPNAP Partners. Bridget and I, as um, chair and co-chair for the Alliance for Children in Foster Care, are delighted to host this series for you. Up to 80% of youth in foster care have at least one mental health problem, and close to 50% of kids in foster care will not graduate with a high school diploma. Statistics show that between 50 to 90% of youth victims of sex trafficking have a history of placement in the foster care system.
0: The mission of the Alliance for Children in Foster Care is to nurture a sense of belonging, connection, and safety for children in foster care, by one, empowering all pediatric-focused advanced practice nurses to incorporate trauma-informed health care as an essential set of services provided to all children in foster care, and two, promoting equitable and optimal growth and development.
1: Thank you for joining us for this conversation about the health and wellness of children in foster care.
0: Oh, Jessica and Jason how are you?
2: Hi Bridget.
0: Thank you guys so much. I'm going to go ahead and um, introduce Jason Spees who is an alum from the University of Texas in Austin School of Nursing where he served as a clinical instructor in both graduate and undergraduate level courses. He is a board certified and licensed family nurse practitioner practicing primary care. Additionally, he holds a license to practice acupuncture and Chinese medicine. He is currently pursuing a PhD in nursing with a research focus in risk factors that generate human trafficking and is chair of the Alliance for Children and Trafficking, a group dedicated to spreading awareness about human trafficking in healthcare. His medical background includes family practice, traditional Chinese medicine, urology, emergency medicine, chronic pain, and rehab hospice and palliative care, long-term care and skilled nursing. Arriving from both a complementary and a traditional medical perspective, Jason strives to combine science and holism in caring for his patients. So welcome, Jason, and congratulations on being chair of the Alliance for Children and Trafficking.
2: Well, thank you so much, uh, next, it's great to be here.
0: Yes, thank you. So next we have Jessica Peck, who is a clinical professor, um, the Louise Harrington School of Nursing, Baylor University past president, National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners, State Advocate Award for Excellence, American Association of Nurse Practitioners, Outstanding Policy Advocate, National Organization of Nurse Practitioner Faculty Advocate of the Year, American Nurses Association, Lillian Wald, Humanitarian Award, National League of Nursing. Dr. Jessica Peck is an expert pediatric nurse practitioner who provides innovative, visionary, and award-winning leadership to develop and lead inclusive and diverse interprofessional teams. Some of her recent work uh, and awards include Texas Nurse Practitioner of the Year, Distinguished Alumni for the University of Alabama, and University of Texas Medical Branch, Loretta C. Ford, Distinguished Nurse Practitioner from the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners, the Sharp Cutting Edge Award from the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, the Lillian Wald Humanitarian Award from the National League of Nursing, two-time Hall of Fame inductee for the Nursing Journal Article of the Year, and Advocate of the Year from the American Nursing Association. She holds elite on a- Honorary designation of fellow from both the American Association of Nurse Practitioners and the Academy of Nursing. Peck is an internationally recognized anti-trafficking advocate. As president of the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners, she created the Alliance for Children in Trafficking and served as the founding chair. Dr. Peck serves as consultant to the U.S. Congress and has worked with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services as an interprofessional team to create core competencies for health professionals caring for individuals exploited and or abused through trafficking. She serves as the lead medical consultant for Unbound Houston and was instrumental in passage of House Bill 2059, which mandates the continuing education for all care providers in Texas. Dr. Peck is currently a clinical professor of nursing at Baylor University in Dallas, Texas. She holds active credentials as a pediatric nurse practitioner, certified nurse educator, and a clinical nurse leader. Dr. Peck is frequently requested as a national speaker on anti-trafficking and child health promotion. She is editing the first interprofessional pediatric COVID-19 textbook in the world. And she has published more than 50 clinical articles Articles for peer-reviewed journals, is a regular contributor for parenting magazines, and a frequent guest on radio, television, and other media. She's also the author of Behind Closed Doors, a guide for parents and teens to navigate through life's toughest issues, released by W Publishing and ranked number one new release on Amazon. So welcome, Dr. Peck. We are incredibly fortunate to be able to have you on this podcast with your vast knowledge and expertise in uh, sex trafficking. So welcome.
3: Thank you so much for having me, Bridget. This is so much fun. So first of all, I have to say, I think when you read my bio, my grandmother is somewhere beaming, you know, cheek to cheek, Absolutely. Maybe, right? But I think it's really fun for me to be on here with Jason. And I would love to start. Jason, should we tell them the story of how we met? Because that's kind of fun.
2: Yeah. Um, Do you want me to? Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) Go ahead. Okay. Uh, So I got interested in trafficking because I had an adolescent girl uh, come in with two STIs, broken teeth, uncontrolled type 1 diabetes. And she had run away from home and was living with her sister and didn't think she was going to graduate high school. And this was in my early years as a nurse practitioner. And the picture of abuse was so uh, extreme. I knew that there was something that I was missing and I hadn't gotten any education in human trafficking yet. And so I went into the literature and I looked and looked and looked for different types of abuse and I discovered trafficking. And this was before 2059 had gone into effect. My supervising physician did not know about it. My other fellow nurse practitioners did not know about it. I couldn't find anyone, anyone in my circle of friends professionally, uh, or personally that really knew much about human trafficking. And so then I finally discovered Jessica Peck. And I, I was looking all online and I heard about her and I was like, oh my God, she's here in Texas. She is doing education in human trafficking. And so I, uh, I was working with her uh, when we were trying to the ongoing struggle of getting full practice authority approved in Texas, Uh, we were at the Capitol and we were visiting a legislator and I had just a brief moment with her. And in just a few seconds, she bullet pointed like every single thing I had ever read on trafficking. And I was so amazed. I was like, Oh my goodness, who is this woman who does everything about trafficking? And um, I connected with her. I got interested. I uh, went into the uh, training to be an ACT advocate. And I was, uh, I was very hesitant to do it. I felt a little shy, uh, but I went through with it. And now I'm, I'm part of the Alliance for Children and Trafficking. I was a champion for a while. Uh, helped uh, revise the three-part module, which everyone who's listening to this should Listen to the three-part module on NAPNAP's website, and uh, helped revise the uh, presentation PowerPoint for ACT advocates to be educators for human trafficking. And you know, uh, Jessica, you've just been a, a light in the darkness, guiding the way my whole journey. And uh, I just think the world of you, and so grateful for you and everything you've done to help bring awareness to trafficking and to and to fight it. So.
3: Well, Jason, I, I feel like now we have to d- give a disclosure. I clearly paid you to say all those <laughs> nice things. But, you know, the funny part about it is that my side of that story is that, of course, I knew you know what you were doing because you were a rising star in, in Texas policy and working with Texas nurse practitioners. But the funny thing is that that day we were making the Capitol visits. I went to go visit my senator, which I had done many, many times before, and I did not know his office had not told me that he moved. His office moved, and so I showed up and thought, "Okay, we're here to visit with my senator, and you know, we just had that great conversation with you because you know you had just asked some questions, and I don't often get asked that questions. A lot of nurse practitioners even they don't want to talk about this subject because it's so Disturbing. But that's we became nurse practitioners because we knew that not everything is always perfect. But we have that great conversation. And I remember walking into the senator's office and realizing I'm in the wrong place. <laughs> like I'm not even <laughs> supposed to be here. But it was such a fortuitous appointment. And I know that our paths were destined to cross because now I look at what you've done and taking it on and doing your PhD or dissertation now, and you will go far beyond, you know, what the groundwork that I've been privileged to lay, but, you know, that's just a, a, great example of how we can amplify each other's efforts and really make a difference tangibly in the lives of kids who need our intervention so badly. So how's that first set up for you, Bridget? We are a power <laughs> team and so excited to be joining you and you know, as the chair of the Alliance for Children in Foster Care uh, to be able to amplify our efforts.
0: Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, again, I feel very, very fortunate to have both of you on this podcast. So can you tell um, our audience a little bit about uh, your perception of the intersection between youth and foster care and sex trafficking and, and where uh, we see our, the similarities within healthcare in which we can make a difference?
3: Well, sure. I'll start with this and then let Jason talk about what ACT is doing um, as a synergistic effort under NAPNAP Partners for Vulnerable Youth. But, you know, for me, I I work and I live here in Texas. And even just looking at Texas for an example, during the fiscal year 2020, there were 47,913 youth in the Texas Department of Family and Protective Services. And I give that specific number because to us as NPs, every one counts. So down to that 913, it counts. Now of that, 2,229 of those youth went missing throughout the course of the year. And a, a Almost all of them were recovered, but of those who were recovered, 136 of them reported being victimized by trafficking. And we also have a dramatic rise in children without safe placement. They're caught. It's referred to as CWOP, those children, because there's so much demand and there's not families for them to stay with, they sleep in hotels, they sleep in Department of Family and Protective Services offices, they sleep in unlicensed temporary shelters, and just in one year from 2020 to 2021, just in Texas, the, the numbers of those kids increased by 785%. So awesome. many of you, I know, it's, it's unbelievable, really, and many of you may have seen headline articles that say something like so many children were rescued from trafficking. But if you read the fine print on those articles, most of those children in fact ran away from some sort of systems-based care, whether that's foster care, juvenile justice, you have kids that have experienced significant trauma in multiple ways that may be through divorce or exposure to violence or family members being incarcerated or any number of, of, traumas that kids can experience. And when they're in that foster care placement, they are just perfectly situated for traffickers to groom them into a situation where they're abused and exploited. And in fact, the National Foster Youth Institute recently estimated about 60% of children who are victimized by sex trafficking have been within foster care at some point in there. So the intersectionality is so great. And Jason, I'll let you add to that.
2: Yeah, I think, uh, I think that that is all important to know. And, um, you know, when we're talking about trafficking, I just want to remind the uh, the listeners that trafficking is the uh, sexual or labor exploitation of a person, either an adult or a child, uh, through force, fraud, or coercion. Uh, now for sexual, uh, for sex trafficking, uh, you don't have to have forced, fraud, or coercion if there's commercial exchange. That's still considered trafficking. And, and children are not only sex trafficked, they are also labor traffic. So I would be remiss not to at least mention that once in uh, the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, what I think of when I think of foster care in relation to sex trafficking, I think of risk. And uh, risk is overall a concept related to probability of something occurring. And so if we're thinking about a child that's in foster care, we have to look at uh, just in general, at least for health care providers. I think we should look at foster care as like a big red flag. It's a signal. Our radar needs to be highly tuned, better tuned, amplified for a child that we have in our care who has been in the foster care system. They arrived in the foster care system because of things that happened to them before. And the things that happened to them before, neglect, physical abuse, sexual abuse, drugs, whatever, those are all risk factors for sex trafficking. And so uh, I think that in the sense of what healthcare providers need to know about this, they need to know that foster care is a really big red flag. Uh, The child could have already been sex trafficked and is in foster care. Uh, or they can be at very high risk for sex trafficking if they're in foster care. And so those are the main things I think of when I think about foster care. We're talking about a history of a dissolution of the original family, the child Mm -hmm. for whatever reason. And uh, we're, we're, we're looking at a child that has experienced multifaceted trauma, polytrauma, and whether it's a whole lot of polytrauma or if it's, a little bit of polytrauma uh, excuse me a little bit of trauma uh singular trauma for example maybe the parent just um, you know was doing drugs and the trauma was neglect maybe there was not early initiation of sex which by the way that is a really huge risk factor for a child to become sex trafficked is early initiation of sex okay. in whatever form uh non-consensually child child sex uh, so that's you know, it's it's so it's so sophisticated and multifaceted. Uh, We we really have to look at this topic and really, really open our minds for kids who have been in foster care uh, to prevent trafficking and to give them the resources they need and to give them extra reinforcement uh, to them during the appointment to increase medical trust.
0: Yeah. Thank you both of you for that. I think, you know, what's also very striking is you know, the statistic where 60%, you know, um, that Dr. Peck was talking about regarding youth and care, you know, at some point being trafficked. And, you know, when we think about our alliances, yeah, you know, all three of our alliances, we're really speaking about how vulnerable these populations are. And unfortunately, it's their vulnerability that makes them more susceptible to these um. Uh, the traffickers, or more susceptible to mental health, more susceptible, you know, to chronic and physical changes. I, I also think, Jason, you know, you you brought up a great point with, you know, wanting to know what we can what we can do as health professionals, and I, I think that it's um, incredibly important to, you know, under have providers understand the role of trauma in which they care for you know, their patients and where their vulnerabilities lie in regards to um, not just risk factors, because as you said, sometimes, I mean, youth in care, they have no voice, they have no say in where they go. Um, And the older, you know, adolescents or those that are in group homes, um, I'm sure you know, and have read are, are even more vulnerable, because, you know, they don't have that stability that they need um you know moving forward what where do you see a way for you know whether it's our alliances or whether it's external agencies or stakeholders to work together on initiatives that focus on the healthcare needs of youth that are in in foster care and then have had that intersection with sex and labor trafficking
3: Well, you know, Bridget, I think that we are still, unfortunately, at a point where we are in desperate need of evidence-based education. There is still a lot of of well-intentioned but ill-informed education that is there. And even as healthcare providers, we are not immune to bias and to stigma that is presented to us in the way a lot of these stories are presented through the media. And so, for example, we still think that trafficking is primarily sex trafficking just as Jason brought up you know so uh, importantly, before even kids in foster care, they are abused and exploited through labor trafficking as well. And we can't just have that singular view of, you know, looking at it as sex trafficking. And I've been talking about this for almost a decade now. And usually, you know, if, in our professional circles, if we're talking about something like, oh, let me give you the updates on antibiotics or something, you you talk about that for a year. And then people have heard that and you move on. But I still go places where people are shocked. I give the same presentation I've been giving, and people just sit there in stunned silence afterward. They can't even think of a question because they're so horrified. It's like you just pull back the veil of all of that stigma that no, you're not looking for a white female who is going to ask you for some sort of rescue. Many right. times that's not how it looks. And so, uh, we are seeing more mandated education. Jason referenced House Bill 2059 in Texas. We and NAPNAP was actually the only, the only organization that initially testified on behalf of that bill because people were opposed to mandated education, but it passed and Texas became the first state to not only have that mandate, but to have the mandate with standards raised around that education. So as healthcare providers, I feel like we can't really move forward in integrating systems and work coordinating care across systems until we're all on the same page for education. And the other thing that's very, very difficult and the barrier in this is that A lot of times, healthcare providers will feel very unempowered. They feel like, oh, this is a terrible thing, and I really am not empowered to act. And that's where we need policies and protocols, and we need health systems. And even if you're in a big health system in a big urban area, or if you're in a rural clinic all by yourself, we really need policies and protocols and preparation in place so that Uh, Clinicians feel equipped and empowered to respond when that happens.
0: Yeah, that's an excellent point. And um, you know, just to highlight two of your points, it really again uh, speaks to the need for evidence-based research and practice to be threaded into our into our practices, which includes trauma-informed care. And you know, again, when we do have the opportunity in healthcare to see our patients and and educate those around us on the best types of care. We know that as pediatric focused uh, advanced practice providers, that we are in that unique role to make sure that we are highlighting to our, not just our practices and within our community, but with our caregivers that care for our patients and their children every day. Um, and the second part, you know, is the advocacy part, uh, as, you know, w- within providing care for youth and foster care um, can be very challenging, uh, because this is state by state by state, every state has their own requirements, every state have their own definitions. So it, it can make it quite challenging for families and healthcare providers to uh, always be on the, um, the cutting edge of knowing what the community, uh, knowing what is in the community and how we can help our, um, our youth. And so with having those discrepancies between and among states, having that advocacy piece is incredibly important, um, not just for children um, or youth in foster care, but also those that have been, um, you know, victimized by sex and labor trafficking. Do you feel, um, Jason, do you have any thoughts on, you know, different types of agencies or community or group or stakeholders in which we uh, as pediatric focused advanced practice nurses should be engaging more?
2: Yeah, you know, um, as Jessica mentioned, I've also experienced uh, meeting healthcare providers that really did not know much about trafficking. And then once they start to learn about it, they feel a little bit helpless and lost in terms of what they're going to do about it. And I think that in terms of sex trafficking, healthcare, and the uh, social work discipline, I think that we're relatively siloed because the greatest uh, healing that's going to come to someone who is ready to exit the life of trafficking is going to come from social work. I think the nursing profession needs to be more informed about what social work does. The, you know, the long-term therapy, the building of life skills, the uh, unraveling and healing of the trauma. That's something that I think nurse practitioners and also physicians and other medical providers are relatively blind to. Um, So I, I feel like the best that we can do as medical providers in that instance, when we have that 15-minute appointment with that person, uh, is treat their medical conditions. Really do your best to create trust with them. And that means respecting their decisions, respecting if they don't want to talk about something, and respecting their ability to say no, even if we offer resources. But Putting them over to social work, getting them set up with a counselor, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, we are really more of a transition point in the long term trajectory of their healing. So that's kind of how I see it. I think that on an individual level, uh, nurse practitioners on their own don't really think about, okay, what organization can I refer to? This is something that nurse practitioners need to know about. For example, in Austin, we have the Safe Alliance, uh, we have Refugee Services of Texas. We have um, Red Oak Hope and uh, Casa Mariana. We've got, I know about them. I think most nurse practitioners might not know where to send people who have been trafficked. Of course, if it's a minor, CPS must be involved, even if you suspect it. That is state law. Uh, But in general, harm reduction, treating their medical illnesses, and uh, referring them to where they need to be referred to, I think is, is, is our place in that process in that 15-minute appointment. Uh, in terms of other organizations that help traffic people, uh, it's totally okay for a nurse practitioner in their clinic or in their uh, place of business to go over to uh, you know domestic violence shelters, get to know them, establish connections, uh, build a, re- uh, a reputation with them uh, in order to be able to serve this particular population. And also, I think every nurse practitioner has a Um, has a mandate to talk with other providers in their clinic and build a greater awareness with other providers and what to do if we encounter people who are being sex trafficked or have been sex sex trafficked in the clinic.
3: I I would say add to that, Jason, you're exactly right. I love how you worded, how you framed it as our place in this ecosystem, you know, because I think that's one reason why so many healthcare providers feel so discouraged because they feel like it's their responsibility to rescue the patient and to fix their situation and that is an unrealistic expectation but that is the expectation that's put on us by the media even by, you know, the movie Sound of Freedom that has taken box offices by storm. The narrative really centers around rescuing these children out of their situation, which is really a criminal justice lens to look at it through. Of course, we want to help children exit their trafficking situation, and we want to remove them from the control of their abuser, if that's at all possible. But it's unrealistic to think that great harm has not already occurred, and they're going to need lifelong services, and especially if they're in a foster care system, it's not like they're going back to an intact family that has you know, unlimited resources at their disposal. And this is hot off the press. By the time people are listening to this podcast, it won't be published yet. So you can feel in the know in advance. But we just worked on relaunching our survey, even if NAPNAP members to judge their um, knowledge, beliefs and attitudes to assess their knowledge, beliefs and attitudes about human trafficking and actually, here, you'll hear it here first. More than 90% of respondents said they felt it is their responsibility to rescue children. And yeah. this is just something that we have to change that narrative. As Jason said, our responsibility is to assess risk, treat their immediate healthcare needs, and then connect them to those services that they need because this is not something that we're going to fix in one visit. This is a lifelong journey that they will be on towards healing and recovery, which really puts the emphasis on our lack of progress in prevention efforts.
0: Yes, I, uh, you know, excellent points. And just to kind of circle back, um, I love uh, the you, you raising the issue of incorporating more uh, social workers or Department of Social Service workers, uh, case managers. I also, on the flip side of that, when it comes to youth and foster care, really would love to emphasize that nursing, you know, in particular advanced practice nursing should have a seat at the table with Department of Social Services and with social workers. Um, I always feel like we are very siloed and there's a lot of overlap. And I think a lot that nursing can contribute to um, advocate for youth and foster care alongside the Department of Social Services, uh, again, social workers, case managers, Uh, Because I think oftentimes when we look at the statistics for children and youth in care, uh, you know, 70% will have a chronic illness or some type of physical um, disability. Some will have behavioral and mental health. So when we have that intersection between what the social needs are of our youth in care, but also the healthcare needs, it's a perfect, in my opinion, you know, and evidence will demonstrate a symbiotic relationship between Department of Social Services and Healthcare. So I think that is one of the emphasis of our alliance in children um, or youth and foster care. You know, is to kind of bridge those gaps in which they we should have you know more of an interdisciplinary um, and interprofessional collaboration with those that also intersect with taking care of youth and care. So I love that you raised that point. Um. So what do you think um can you uh Jason um, and certainly Dr. Peck uh chime in can I give us an update on what the alliance in children and trafficking is is up to and you know some of your future directions for the upcoming um 2024 year
2: uh yes and um before i get into that i just want to clarify the concept of rescue in the health department, because as Jessica mentioned, it is extremely prevalent. And I want to expand a little bit on the rescue concept for the healthcare providers, if that's okay.
0: Absolutely. Please do.
2: Okay. So people who have been trafficked have had their agency very, very constrained, very constrained. They cannot go where they want to. They are monitored. People are telling them what to do. And this type of 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 constraint of agency is also a form of abuse and so they come into the clinic we as nurses and nurse practitioners are interventionalists we see a strep throat we give the antibiotics Um, the blood pressure is too high we do this we do that we are primed for intervening and a trafficking situation has to be approached differently we are here to help them regain their agency, okay? We want to support their ability to make their own choices. And in order to do that, we cannot just go in and rescue them. We cannot decide for them what we are going to do for them. It has to be a mutually collaborative thing. Now, for minors, of course, uh, we don't have a lot of choice, we have to report if they're 18, 19, 20, and most commonly people who are sex trafficked are in the adolescent to early adult age. The main thing that we need to do for them is offer referrals and create trust and treat their medical conditions. We have to compose ourselves when we are in front of that patient that we are not going to do something to them. We are going to offer and see if they accept as is appropriate in terms of the age of the patient. And if you have a minor who has suffered some form of abuse, could be trafficking, maybe it's not. Sometimes in an appointment, we don't know for sure if trafficking is actually occurring. The patient doesn't always disclose. They might say some things that, you know, tingle our spidey sense a little bit. We say, hey, wait a minute, something's not right here. And we try to, you know, interview a little bit more in a way that's not intrusive. Um, Sometimes what I've done, with kids. If I have to call CPS is I'll give them a choice. I'll say, Hey, look, um, XYZ is happening. This is a form of abuse. Legally. I have to report this. Uh, I'm, I'm sure it's not going to be a comfortable situation for you, but would you like to be present with me when I report this to the person so that you can also speak with them? Or I'll say something like, okay, do you want us to report now? or in five minutes. Would you like, do you want me to leave the door open or shut? Do you want to sit here or there? Would you like a glass of water? Um, Interacting with minors in this way, even in an uncomfortable situation such as reporting uh, to CPS or the police, it, it at least gives them some flexibility in terms of what they want for this difficult situation. If it is an adult and they refuse all resources, that just has to be respected. Just let them know, okay, no problem. If we're here for you, if you you want us, if you need us, we care about you. Please come see us if if anything bad happens to you, we want to help. And so when we think about the rescue concept, like everything I just talked about is like the exact opposite of our interventionalist type of approach Mm -hmm. to most things that we do in medicine, right? So I just wanna really emphasize that the approach to someone who is being trafficked or perhaps we suspect that they're being trafficked is very different than a strep throat or uh, diarrhea or constipation or whatever. We have to approach these people differently in a harm reduction approach and in a very respectful uh, approach that encourages their own choice making the appointment i just wanted to say that i thought that was very important Um, no
0: it is I, i think that's just an excellent point and it does kind of speak to both you know the nature of healthcare providers uh the education that we receive the education that we deliver um is very uh curative in nature so uh, you know I think it's a very important uh aspect to make sure we reinforce is this rescuing um I don't want to say mentality but this the, the need to to rescue and we I, I mean I certainly feel it when I practice at times so I, I think it's a great reminder that that is not our role in in this type of a situation so it is a learning curve for for healthcare providers to um to understand that they're not there to rescue that they are there to again um be that safe harbor be that person that is going to give the best evidence-based um care and 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 move forward from there versus the the rescue um mentality that we do have. So uh, that's an, that's an excellent point. And again, I think it speaks to uh, the, you know, the survey, if we still have up to, you know, 90% of our participants and that are still wanting to rescue our youth, um, it tells us that we still, you know, have a long way to go with education as well within, within our um, healthcare providers. So thank you. If you want to share, use this opportunity to share where um, the direction of the Alliance for Children and Trafficking is going in the upcoming year.
2: Yeah, so uh, we're very excited about it. Um, We have revised our three-part modular human trafficking educational series. If anyone wants to go deeper, know more about what trafficking is. Uh, we talk about research, we talk about clinical approach, we talk about risk factors, talk about what to do, how to respond if someone accepts resources, how to respond if they don't, what do you do with minors, all of that. And then there is a component on um, uh, policy and how to approach stakeholders and you know just different things that we can do from a more institutional level, a bigger level uh, in our uh, third modular series. The, the ACT presentation is updated as well. Uh, COVID kind of put a little bit of a damper on our movement from yeah. 2020 to about right now, we're feeling a lot more liberated. Uh, we did do an act advocate training at the NAP-NAP national conference, and we're scheduled in September to, uh, to lecture and give our workshop, uh, for uh the international association for forensic nursing we're very excited about that i think we have so far 30 people signed up so if any listeners hear this and they want to go full steam on becoming an educator for human trafficking or just get deeper into what trafficking is and how to be a better provider when you encounter trafficking uh, you can come to that workshop in september it's in phoenix we're very excited about it Uh, we are looking for more educators uh, anybody who's interested can reach out and uh, contact me. Uh, we do want to increase our educator base. We're looking to do that. And we're looking for people who have an extra enthusiasm for trafficking to be tr- champions with the Alliance for Children Trafficking. Um, you know, our mission is to educate and to bring awareness to labor and sex trafficking. And uh, it's a it's a group effort. So so hit me up. I'll tell you all. all about. Right.
3: I have to add, Jason, it's I, so exciting to me to listen to this because, you know, I was on the uh, National Executive Board when MAPNAP Partners for Vulnerable Youth came to be, and we just were thinking, how can we use our advocacy skills to be a bigger voice for emerging health threats? And we started to see all of these things that were threatening children that it's it was impossible to adapt curriculum to. You know, we can't teach about every new threat that's coming. There's the fentanyl crisis and one pill can kill and, you know, all of these things. But it was really trafficking that we saw the opportunity and that did emerge from Texas, from the work that we were doing here in Texas. I've shared this story before, but really briefly, uh, one one of my friends who ran an anti-trafficking advocacy organization had called me and asked me to help author continuing education for anti-trafficking in Texas. And I said, oh, Absolutely not. Like, no, I don't know anything about trafficking. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. But then just in seeing that we were not there, NAPNAP was really positioned to be a leader in bringing nursing to the table. And I'm really proud to say that NAPNAP was the only nursing representation at the United States Department of Health and Human Services to create the core competencies. And I think we would be remiss in having this episode and not reminding listeners that, The core competencies are there for individual clinicians, for academic institutions, for researchers, and for health organizations, health systems based care. And you can even go onto the website and you can do a self-assessment tool to see where are you and being competent to say, yes, I can respond as an individual clinician, as a protocol in a health organization. And now looking and seeing where you're taking the alliance, Jason, you know, after Brenda has been, been the chair and now you're the chair. And now we see the Alliance for Children and Foster Care and the Alliance to Prevent Youth Suicide and All of those interrelated efforts were really in the amplification stage of that, and it's so exciting to me to see what is going to come. I fully anticipate that there will continue to be future populations and that our reputation as experts in pediatrics and advocates for children will continue to grow, and we will continue to impact children around the world, and that is so exciting for me to see.
0: Yes, thank you. I agree. I, I think um, I, I'm i all for, you know, nurses having a greater voice and to be able to do that through these alliances is incredibly important. Um, the alliances are all volunteers. So uh, it's wonderful to be able to uh really engage with our, um, you know, healthcare professionals across the country on a, you know, a united vision for, for our youth moving forward. Um, so I was going to end it there, but you guys spurred a question for me. Um, when you guys were talking and, you know, being a academician as well as a pediatric nurse practitioner What do you do uh, either one of you feel um, that there is a role for higher education in regards to, you know, curricular changes regarding uh, uh, youth that have uh, that are sex or labor trafficked or youth in foster care or those with mental health issues?
3: I can definitely speak to that, you know, working right now in academia, I'm a professor at Baylor University, I can tell you, there is so much work to be done. And this is something that does need to be incorporated into the curriculum. And people, a lot of times are, you know, using a one, you know, thinking, okay, let me insert a one hour CE at some point in the curriculum. And we know from science on education that that's just not effective. And this is, um, something that is at very high stakes. So if a provider is to encounter someone who's trafficked, you're talking about a dangerous situation that has a high probability of intersection with a criminal, with criminal activity, criminal actors. You need to keep your patients safe. You need to keep your other patients and other staff who are in the care environment safe. I mean, there's just a, a lot of high stakes things that are there. And there's also the very real risk of vicarious trauma. I mean, these things are hard to carry. And we need to create an, a, institutions that are trauma informed, that say, you know, maybe if there's a provider who has a personal history of significant abuse, that there's a way for them to be reassigned, not feeling like they just have to take one for the team and endure more personal trauma to take care of that. So there is so much work to be done. Done. I'm currently actually working with the University of Miami. They have a, a world-class simulation center where that's really where the future of education and trafficking is moving, not just from a one-hour CE, which we need that as a foundation, and that is a good place to start. The simulation is such a more effective way of learning, but there's a lot of challenges there? How do you have standardized patients that you're having simulate a trafficking situation? That can be traumatizing for them. That can be traumatizing for the faculty. And we've seen that there. It is it is heavy. It is difficult. But we still have no curricular standards. There's still no joint commission standard, although they did issue a safety bulletin after we contacted them early in the work of the Alliance because of the risk of suicidality. So, Again, we're talking about that intersectionality here, but I think there is um there is a lot of work to be done. And and to plug what Jason is doing, if you're an educator who's listening and you think this is not in our curriculum, what can I do? Hey, become an act advocate. We can give you a baseline understanding and a starting place. We can give you a slide deck that you can. Freely integrate into your curriculum. If you're working at a university that allows you to incorporate outside resources, you could even require the advocate um, programming that we have, but at least it's a good resource for educators to become more involved, to feel confident, to integrate this into a curriculum from a starting place in a way that's responsible and trauma-informed and evidence-based.
0: Yeah, I I totally agree. Um, Definitely. uh, uh great, great words of wisdom from both of you. Um, I do feel that um, hopefully this does in- increase and enhance the knowledge of not just for youth in foster care, but certainly um, the youth that uh, are uh, victims of sex and labor trafficking. So I-, I thank you immensely for your time and for your efforts that you put into our most vulnerable populations. Uh, We definitely appreciate all of uh, your work and uh, certainly lending your expertise for this podcast.
2: It's been a pleasure to be here and thank you so much for inviting us.
3: Thank you for having us, Bridget. And thank you for all that you are doing to raise awareness of this issue and empower advocacy. And Jason, thanks so much for all you're doing for ACT. It's really exciting and I can't wait to see where it's going to go from here.
2: Yeah, thank you. Me
0: too. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Team Peds Talks, Children in Foster Care, brought to you by the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners.
1: If you like this series, be sure to look for other episodes and explore our other series all on pediatric health. Visit napnap.org and click on the Team Peds Talks menu item under the Continuing Education tab. The conversations are available wherever you listen to podcasts. Search Team Pete's Talks on your app on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or on Anchor.fm.
0: We are always looking for volunteers to continue our vision and our mission for the Alliance for Children in Trafficking. So please feel free to reach out to either Tracy and I via the website. Uh, We would love to have you. Please join us again next time and thank you for listening.